All right, will you please open your Bibles with me this morning to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 17. This is the second of five distinct conflicts that Mark gives us between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Does that sometimes shock us? It should shock us that Jesus was at odds with the religious leaders, the people who should have known who he was. The first conflict was last week when he so boldly claimed to have authority to forgive sins in the account of the paralytic in the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2. And now, today, the religious leaders once again take issue with Jesus and his association with sinful people. So let's read, beginning in chapter 2 at verse number 13. Mark says that he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Father, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word. O Spirit of God, come and take it and transform us by it. It is our only hope. We have not come for a pep talk. We have come for divine truth from your word. And we ask you to grant it to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. A few years ago, after we moved here to New Jersey from, from North Carolina, uh, one of the first things that, that took us some time to get used to was the, the various cultural differences. I mean, you know, I, I had never heard of a Jimmy before. My father-in-law's name is Jimmy, but I had no clue what Jimmys were. Uh, I, I, I didn't know that a hoagie was the same thing as a sub sandwich, or we just call them subways, you know. And I still don't know what down the shore means. <laughs> but you know, there was one thing that took us a long time to get used to, and quite frankly, I'm still not really used to it. It's something that I absolutely, I loathe it. I hate it. <laughs> and it's the tolls. Had you scared there for a moment, didn't you? It's the tolls. I hate the tolls. Tolls in Jersey, tolls in Delaware, tolls in Maryland, Pennsylvania. We haven't been up to New York yet, but I know, I know there's tolls there. Someone told me one time there was a $20 toll for a tunnel in New York City. Now, we didn't have toll roads and turnpikes in South Carolina where I grew up. Yeah, we had dirt roads. 
And if we were lucky, they'd throw some gravel on them. But every time I pay a toll up here, it feels like literal highway robbery to me. Nevertheless, whenever we go into Delaware for, to shop or you know, to eat dinner, I sit through the, the, the toll booth to slow down with a smile on my face and reluctantly hand over the compulsory tax just to drive on the road. I smile and try to be as nice as, as possible to the toll collectors, but sometimes I wonder if they hate their jobs collecting the toll as much as I hate paying it. You know, there are some jobs, though, once, once I really thought about it, there are some jobs that almost come with a certain stigma where the general public is already sort of inclined to not like you because of your occupation. You think about maybe toll collectors. Maybe, you know, if you're from South Carolina, you're certainly thinking that way. Uh, but perhaps employees at the DMV. or other government offices, and especially the IRS agents. You see, we often see these jobs as representations of government bureaucracy. And still, as much as we may not like paying tolls, or paying taxes, or having to stand outside, you know, to get your license renewed in a line, as much as we do not like those things, we don't shun the employees. We don't, we don't treat them with contempt, those who work in these occupations. We don't ban IRS agents from church membership. If you work for the government, you're free to be a member here if you're a born-again Christian. We don't look down on the DMV worker, but in our text today, we see exactly that kind of thing as Mark introduces us to a tax collector named Levi, whom we most commonly know him as Matthew, his Greek name. Levi and Matthew are the same person. He was a man shunned by the Jews, but embraced by Jesus. He was shunned by the religious elite, but called by Jesus. And though we ourselves are far too good at looking down on others in our own hypocritical piety. This episode in Mark here shows us that in fact we are the tax collector who needs Christ. We are the sinners who must recognize our great need for Jesus and follow Him in faith. So I want to work through this passage with you this morning. Note three main headings. And the first is the shocking call of Levi. Verse 13, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to Him. And He was teaching them, this is Jesus. And as He passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Tax collectors were local individuals who were contracted out by the Roman government to enforce a variety of taxes on the people throughout the empire. 
The fishing industry of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee made it a very strategic and really lucrative place for a tax collector to set up shop. They would be in sort of a makeshift booth near the busy roads surrounding the commercial district so that they could tax merchants who traveled through the region. Tax collectors were required by the Roman government to collect a, a certain percentage tax on a variety of items and services or travel. But the tax collectors would then charge a rate over and above what the Roman government required and they would keep the profits for themselves. They were in effect dishonest thieves and crooks and the people hated them for it. Jews living under Roman oppression viewed Jewish tax collectors as disgraced Roman sympathizers who were betraying their own people. But here we have Jesus teaching while walking along the Sea of Galilee, drawing a large crowd. And he sees Levi in his toll booth collecting taxes and says to him, follow me. This was a shocking call for at least two reasons. Number one, Jewish rabbis never called their own disciples. I believe I've told you this before. They never called their own disciples. Instead, prospective disciples would seek out their own rabbis, whoever they wanted to learn from, and then they would apply to be their student, to be their disciple, much like young people today apply for college. And so Jesus is already breaking with the conventional practice of the day by calling His own disciples. And secondly, the stigma associated with a tax collector would have made Him a very unlikely and very controversial choice to be a disciple. And yet, here Jesus is reaching out to a despised societal outcast calling Matthew to follow him. No rabbi concerned with the honor of his reputation would have done this. Mark says at the end of verse 14 that Matthew rose and followed him. Luke 5.28 gives us a little more detail. He says, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, there are three possible implications that I want us to consider in Matthew's willing and eager response to Jesus, to the call of Jesus. Number one, maybe Matthew had grown weary of the disgrace of his occupation. Maybe he was just tired of the life of the tax collector, tired of the ridicule tired of the hate and eager to start over. He just left everything. Just left his booth, took off. I'm I'm in, Jesus. Secondly, perhaps Matthew was already deeply convicted of his sin. The life that had promised wealth and happiness had left him empty and hopeless. He was a dishonest man. And he was empty. Have you ever been like that? 
Or perhaps you've known someone like that, just tired of living the empty life of sin. Because that's how sin leaves us. It leaves us empty, without purpose, without hope. And friends, whether we want to admit it or not, that kind of life gets old after a while. It takes its toll. Maybe Matthew was tired of that. Or thirdly, maybe it was the power of Jesus' call that was so compelling, Matthew had no choice but to follow Jesus. And I think all three of these are true, but this one most of all. Because when Jesus calls us to repentance, friends, the divine power of His call, the sovereign grace of the Holy Spirit opens our blinded eyes so that we can see ourselves as the sinners that we are and that we can see Christ as the Savior that He is. The one, the only one who can wipe away the guilt of our past, the shame, the stigma of a life lived for self and give us new life. He's the only one that can do that. Not a new job, not a new family, not a new wife, not a new town, not a new city, new state, moved countries. Who we are follows us. And only Jesus and His call to discipleship can remedy that. Now how could, how could Matthew resist such a call? He couldn't. And so he left everything. He dropped it and followed Jesus. He knew there was no going back. His life was never the same after that day, that final day in the tax booth at Capernaum. I wonder if he got up that morning thinking, will this be the day? I don't think so. He certainly didn't get up that morning knowing that the next morning he would be following a Galilean preacher. How about us? Have we heard the inner call of Christ and left everything to follow Him? Or are we still hanging on to something of this world and just sort of following Jesus part-time? We buy vocational, so to speak. Working for self, most of the time, and then we'll give Jesus a little bit on Sunday. You see, following Jesus, friends, means to turn away from self-rule and to submit to the Lordship of Christ. It means to leave our own ambitions behind to pursue His. Following Christ means transformation. It doesn't matter who we are, whether we're a hated sinful tax collector or a sweet elderly lady at the grocery store working just to have something to do in her old age. doesn't matter that Christ would call Matthew or any of us to follow Him is shocking grace. I don't know about you, but sometimes I forget that. We should, you know, we, we act like We act like Jesus is obligated to save anyone. It should shock us that Christ would call any of us to salvation. 
He's not, a, he's not obligated to show mercy. Shocking grace. And friend, that kind of grace always provokes a response from those who are righteous in themselves. So the next thing that we see in our text is the self-righteous separation of the religious elite. After Jesus called Matthew to follow him, and Matthew dropped it and left, I'm, I'm with you. I'm all in, he said. Well, guess what he did? Matthew went home and threw a party. Look at verse 15. As he reclined, this, the he here is, is Christ, as he reclined at table in his house, and now the his there refers not to Christ but to Matthew. We'll, we'll see in a minute. As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now Luke gives us a little more detail and a little more perspective in describing the scene. Luke 5.29 says this, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. What's happening here? Matthew has invited his friends, which undoubtedly included his tax collecting colleagues. He's invited them over to his house for a party, a feast. And notice that both Mark and Luke say that many, notice the word, many tax collectors and sinners followed Jesus. And this got the attention of the religious elite. Why would this rabbi, this preacher from Nazareth, who claims to be God, why would he have such a following of sinners? Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Luke's perspective is again helpful. Luke 5.30 says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. They grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I can almost hear them now. There was a wild party at the tax collector's house and the new rabbi was there. The word Pharisee It means separated one. And they were the religious elite of of Jesus. You know, I I realize the Pharisees get a bad rap. They weren't all bad, okay? Just like not all preachers are bad, or all Christian leaders are bad, just because some here or there do, you know. But Jesus was at odds with the vast majority of them in His day. And Luke 34 says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And we sing the hymn last week, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. 
Well, they criticized him for it. Friends, this was pious snobbery at its ugliest. But notice that they didn't complain directly to Jesus, did they? They grumbled at his disciples. And that's how it usually works, right? The grumblers always seem to complain about something to someone, but never to the right one. Self-righteous Pharisees look down on Jesus with condescending piety. It was scandalous what he was doing. He had just essentially claimed to be God by saying that he could forgive the sins of the paralytic. And now he's feasting with tax collectors and sinners? You see, friends, there was something about Jesus that made sinners comfortable around Him. And this is where this episode, this passage, really gets super challenging for us. Because can the same be said about you and me? Are unbelievers comfortable being around us? Or are we wound up so tight in our pious list of do's and don'ts that an unbeliever doesn't want to get within 50 feet of us for fear of being judged or condemned? You know, it's funny. We, we have this neighbor. You, you all know him. He's a great fellow. I love him. We have this neighbor who he has a bit of a, he has a, bit of a potty mouth. Sometimes we'll be talking and, and he'll use some colorful language. And then he'll catch himself and he's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. He, he knows I'm a pastor, I pastor the church. He, he doesn't want to offend me. But you know what? I am far more concerned that he doesn't feel condemned by me than I am concerned about the language that he uses in front of me. Do we shriek back when a sinner acts like a sinner in front of us? Do they get a vibe from us? Sometimes we need to, we just need to get over ourselves and be the kind of Christians that unbelievers can be comfortable being around. Because how else will they hear the truth of the gospel from our lips if they do not want to be around us because we make them feel dirty and sinful? But this is not an excuse for worldliness. Don't take it that way, friends. You see, Jesus was the friend of sinners, but He was not the friend of their sin. We can and we must do the same. I'm going to share this. It'll probably get me in trouble. But a few years ago, here, not long after we got here, a group of ladies from our church went to Applebee's on a Friday evening. I bet we hadn't been here six months. We had some visitors, you know, coming to church, checking us out. We had this ladies group, I don't know, probably nine or ten of them. They went to Applebee's on a Friday night. And, uh, and one lady who had been visiting our church for 
a few weeks, uh, has sent my wife a, a rather scolding text. Don't worry, she's not here anymore. She's been gone for a while. Was never a member, just... Sent my wife a scolding text, wondering why a group of Christian women were going to Applebee's on a Friday night with, without their husbands. She did not approve. Oh, the scandal of Christian women at Applebee's. Friends, this kind of separated fundamentalist piety should drive us crazy. Might it actually be a good thing for the community to see a group of Christian women enjoying friendship, enjoying fellowship over dinner, treating their server with kindness, leaving a really big tip, maybe even having a gospel conversation with someone. It's called being salt and light. Friends, are we willing to be accused of eating and drinking around sinners like Jesus did for the sake of the gospel? Or are we going to be the ones who sit back in pious judgment? Lastly, we see here in this passage the the focus of Jesus. It is a sinner-saving focus. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Christ, divinely perceptive as always, He hears the grumbling of the religious elite to His disciples, and He he comes to their rescue. He lays down the gauntlet. He essentially looks at the religious leaders and says, You guys think you are righteous? Okay, great. Then I didn't come for you. You see, there's something important here that we need to draw out of this text. (laughs) Jesus doesn't actually think that anyone is spiritually well. He doesn't actually think that anyone is righteous, including the Pharisees and their scribes. He knows the very opposite is true. He knows that they are the ones who need Him most. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all like an unclean thing, Isaiah said, and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's the Bible's estimation of our goodness. We all need grace. We all need a righteousness that is not our own. And Jesus is saying here that He has come not for those who think that they are well, who think that they are righteous but for those who know that they are sick, that they are sinful. In other words, friends, He has come for all those who recognize their great need for Him. You see, good religious people rarely recognize their own sin, but they are masters at identifying the sins of others. And Jesus didn't come for those kind of people. For they have no need of Him. Jesus has come for sinners. And that, friends, is all of us. 
without exception, without distinction. You see, the Pharisees would never deny that God saves sinners. They would, they would never deny that. That is the redemptive thrust of all the Old Testament Scriptures. God saves sinners. Yahweh, the Lord, saves. But what they failed to see is that God saves sinners as sinners. Apart from any effort on our part to become righteous. Because that, friends, is impossible. God is not impressed with our righteous piety. He is not impressed with our long list of do's and don'ts. They earn us no merit with Him. The only way that we can satisfy the infinite righteousness of God is for His own righteousness to be accounted to us by grace through faith in Christ. That is the gospel we must believe today if we are to be saved. I know I say it all the time. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, he's only said that about... 200 times in the past three sermons. That is the gospel. That is what we preach here. The gospel. That we are undone. That we need a Savior whether we are five years old or 95 years old. We never outgrow the need to see ourselves as the tax collector, as the sinner at the party whom Jesus is not afraid to jump into our mess and rescue us out of it. So let's not undercut the power of the gospel here. Jesus doesn't save sinners just to leave us in our sin, but to call us out of it. He saves us as we are, yes, as sinners. You've heard this before. Come to God... Come to God as you are. God saves us as we are. That's absolutely true, but it's only partly true because He doesn't leave us as we are. By His grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, we are continually transformed into the likeness of the holiness of Christ. That is the final target of salvation, friends, not heaven. The final target, the goal, the ultimate prize of salvation is Christ-likeness. That we will see Him as He is. And we will be transformed to be like Him. Are you a good person Good person here this morning? Are you good? You think yourself good? Then you don't need Jesus. He's not for you. Now, he didn't come for you if you think you're good. Are you a wretched sinner? Condemned. Condemned under the just wrath of a holy God this morning. Then I have the best news you will ever hear. The Lord Jesus Christ has come for you. The 19th century Anglican pastor, J.C. Ryle. If you don't read J.C. Ryle, you need to read J.C. Ryle. He said this, To feel our sins and know our sickness is the beginning of real Christianity. To be sensible of our corruption and abhor our own transgressions is the first symptom of spiritual health. 
Happy indeed are they who have found out their soul's disease. Let them know that Christ is the very physician they require and let them apply to Him without delay. The scandalous Jesus who called a despised tax collector to follow Him, He had room at His table for sinners. And friends, there is room at His cross as well for all sinners who will believe Oh, sinner this morning, abandon your sin. And oh, good and pious Christian, abandon your self-righteousness and flee to Christ and trust in Him today.